Welcome back to the Missing Maura Murray podcast. Lance, tonight we're bringing the audience part two of our two-part peek into the disappearance of Brianna Maitland. That's a good way to put it because it is right now a peek into just a glimpse into uh, into her disappearance, into this case. We have Mark Harper and we have Greg Overacker who will present to us the details of their investigations in broad strokes in a way where I'm considering it as if it were to be a novel, this is the forward to the chapters that will become the story of Brianna Maitland's disappearance. So in this episode, we will talk to Greg Overacker, a private detective who works with the Maitland family, and he is going to take up the bulk of this episode. But before we air the Greg Overacker interview, we are going to hear from Mark Harper of MJA Inc. Investigations, who was also on episode 32 of this podcast, talking about what he thinks is a connection between the Maura Murray case and the Brianna Maitland case. He and MJA processed Brianna Maitland's car and handed over the evidence to the Vermont State Police. So that's what you're going to hear about in this episode. If you want to hear more about Mark's theory, check out episode 32 of this podcast. And now we know that this case is stimulating a lot of curiosity and a lot of interest, especially those who are coming from the Maura Murray case. So fear not, there will be a much deeper investigation going on as we dig deeper into Brianna's disappearance in our new podcast, which we will have more information at the end of this episode. All right. So that being said, let's roll the Mark Harper interview. And this episode is brought to you by Blue Apron. So check out blueapron.com slash missing for your first three meals free with free shipping. That's blueapron.com slash missing. Let's roll the interview with Mark Harper. On the last week of um, last weekend, September 2004, uh, Mr. Maitland contacted us and said that the Vermont State Police had released Miss Maitland's car to the parents. Okay, on um, October 3rd and 10th, we processed Miss Maitland's car, uh, totaling 8.5 hours processing. The processing team was myself, Mark Harper, and LJ. I was the only one who entered the vehicle. LJ handed me the tools when they were needed. What type of tools do you typically use in a, in a search like this? Since it was during daylight, we had a 60-foot tarp to cover the vehicle complete. Uh, we had five different light sources, super glue, fingerprint dust, tape, fingerprint holders, swabs, evidence bags, envelopes and latex gloves. The order in which we carry our work out in processing is an eye inspection, a light source inspection, and then a fingerprint inspection. By our inspection, we saw firsthand what was done by the Vermont State Police. MJA collected evidence that we believe was missed by the Vermont State Police. MJA found four fingerprints that hadn't been collected. The Vermont State Police left behind 
in the vehicle some of their fingerprint tapes that look to have readable prints on them. The four prints that we collected, it's a 70 to 30 chance that they are readable. Then also with the light source found moot traces of blood under the driver door armrest. See no evidence that the Vermont State Police took samples from these traces were so small that they would have collected them all. Three green fibers. When fibers are separated, you are to collect all of them. One light blue syringe cap missed by the Vermont State Police on May 15th and 16th, 2004. NJA found it and collected evidence that pointed that was related to the Maitland case. Items found. Victoria's Secret's underwear that matches Miss Maitland's size and style. Three sets of flex cuffs that had been cut off and there were traces of hair in the locking area of the cuffs. One syringe that happens to match the light blue syringe cap that was collected from Miss Maitland's vehicle. MJA turned over those items to the Vermont State Police at the St. Albans Barracks on May 16, 2004. The following Monday, MJA gets a call from the Vermont State Police detective ahead of the Maitland investigation at the time, stating, the Vermont State Police can't test every item we turn in besides Female underwear syringes can be found all over the Vermont countryside. Since that time, MJA has failed to locate any more female underwear and syringes during our 12-year search for Miss Maitland. Two of the samples that we collected, which I sent you photos to, if you blew up the photos, you'd see the writing we put in there. Okay, on the driver's side, there was vomit, and on the passenger side, there was vomit. We took samples of those because, in fact, there was food cartons in there. We wanted to make sure it wasn't food and make sure it was biological material. So we do know that she vomited at least twice in the vehicle. Once again, the person that we're talking about, more than likely, uses a hot shot, a stun gun, some type of weapon like that. And so if you give somebody a hot shot that's not using any of that, one of the natural reflexes is you vomit. So we just wanted to interject here for a moment and uh, bring up what Mark called a hot shot. A hot shot by street definition would be any injection of any poison, an opiate, heroin, that would render somebody unconscious or dead. I don't know if people know this or not, but see on a syringe, okay, down where the needle is, there's a collar on them. A lot of them's orange, green, blue. Okay, we got a cap that matches the blue color of the needle, blue. See, they're identical match. I just don't think that's a coincidence. And that's that was my saying. Run what's inside the syringe. See what's in it. And they never got back to you on that. No, I don't, like I said, I don't know what they've done with this evidence, but 
Okay, exactly the underwear. Same size and style. Now, what is the chance? And believe me, these underwear was hid. It was it was a fluke chance they were even found. Where were they hid? Well, uh, we had this place on top of a mountain that we used for what we call think tank or break area. And plus, we had a dog with us. We were stretching our legs and everything. Well, the underwear was buried, but on the waistband, it had that glitter on it. Well, just so happened, I was standing outside the van smoking a cigarette, and the sun hit that glitter to where it shined. So I naturally went over there and started, you know, noticing, hey, it was a, a band of a piece of clothing. So um, I got out my tools and started peeling everything back. And see, that's another thing. This was in May. They hadn't been out there that long. She was taken in March 19, 2004. This is uh, May uh, 15, 2004. And how far away from the scene of the uh, the scene of her car? How far away was it? Not very far. And see, that's what I mean. To dump evidence, they could have come back at a later time. We know at the time that she was abducted, they didn't get up that way. Say about 10 days later, yes, they could have. In the list of what you found in the car, it says three sets of flix cuffs. Can you can you elaborate a little bit as to what a flix cuff is? Well, it's a flex cuff, and what it is, it's, it's like a zip tie, but it's bigger to uh, handle the pressure from a human. It has a clasp where you zip it down, like a locking me- mechanism. And in the locking mechanism, when you pull it to pull it tight on a person, is uh, where the samples of hair are located. So if I'm understanding this correctly, I've worked with zip ties before. Once you... Once you lock that into place, it doesn't unlock, right? Right. See, they've it's, been cut off of somebody. We do know that. In the locking area of that, that's where the hair was found. Is this hair that was long enough where it was was someone's hair on their head? Or was it maybe wrist hair or something? Let's put it this way. One of them was about 13, 14 inches long. Did you find any any accurate comparison between that hair and Brianna's? Uh, like I said, they haven't said if they did or not. Yeah, I wish I had that type of equipment. So what do you think the possibility is that there is definitive evidence on those swatches or on something that they've already collected and they just don't have conclusive information to pin it on the person that uh, is top on their suspect list? I think the fingerprint tape was left behind because they got excited for what they seen in the back seat. But what was on the back seat, this, that, and the other? Was it biological? Was I don't believe it was blood because I believe we still, when we went through it, we still would have found traces. Even though they cut out stuff, you don't get it all. So I don't think it was blood. It could have been semen. But like I said, once again, that was from the time they had the car and processed it, and then they had released that they had no evidentiary value that came out of doing the car. Now, so like I said, if they was hiding things back then, yeah, they probably could have. But uh, just recently have they come out and said, well, they found DNA. 
Now, my understanding, I don't know, that I haven't confirmed this yet, but since they have a DNA profile, it's supposed to be entered in the CODIS. Well, if it's entered in the CODIS, they haven't got a hit. So whoever this, whoever left this DNA behind has never had a serious crime enough to have his blood taken and entered in CODIS. The spot of blood, you said it was the size of a, like a pinhead, right? Just a little bit bigger than that. There was like uh, three of them. Now, what it looked like to me, from the experience I do have, it was like somebody got pricked with something, and that was the cast off from it. Can you tell us more about the green fibers that you found? There was three green fibers. Uh, one of the pictures I pointed uh, direction of uh, where we found one of them. But now, to me, it's an off green color to where but it looks like, okay, you know how jackets and coats, at the end, they have, you know, cloth or some type of material down at the end of the cups? Okay, that's what it looks like to me. It looks like material from a cup has been torn from the cup of a, some type of jacket. But I can tell you this, that fiber is not connected to Miss Maitland, not at her parents' house not at her place of residence, and not at her workplace. And the fiber doesn't match the color of fibers in her car. So it is what I consider a foreign fiber. How do you follow up on that? Well, you just have it just in case you come across somebody and there's evidence collected. You just never know. So that was Mark Harper talking about what MJA did to process Brianna Maitland's car. We will be airing the full interview that we had with Mark Harper on our new podcast. More details to come there. But now let's throw it to Greg Overacker, private investigator who works with the Maitland family. Who's worked with the Maitland family since the beginning, correct? Since very early, yes. Very early on. And to this day... Greg and Bruce, Brianna's father, still maintain a very close relationship. Okay, and here is Greg Overacker. So, Greg, welcome to the podcast. Um, could you first start by telling the audience what it is you do and what your name is? Uh, my name is Greg Overacker. I'm a private investigator. I got involved with Brianna Maitland's case back in 2006, just after Father's Day. And uh, I had seen her poster, a missing poster, while I was on the thruway. And, and contacted an organization who kind of set up a search for her and helped distribute the, the, the posters and things like that, helped create them and things like that. They're called Class Kids. Class Kids are... are uh, a group that was set up by Holly Kloss's father, Mark. And you'll recognize Mark. He's on television quite often. Daughter was murdered, Polly. She was abducted from, from the, her mother's home. But um, they set up a search for the Maitlands and did a great job. And uh, I sent them an email, and I can't remember Mark's uh, first guy in command there, but um, he put me through to the Maitlands. And... 
eventually Kelly and Bruce called me. And that's how I got to know them. Oddly, I, I was with my daughter, and we stopped at the throughway so she could use the restroom. And, you know, being with a young girl in a, in a throughway stop, I was kind of on her like a hawk and had to wait outside the, the restroom for her to go in and use it. And while I was sitting there, there was Brianna's missing poster, which I wasn't unfamiliar with, you know, when you travel a lot and you, well, when I did used to work for Bell Bondsman full time, I travel up and down the East coast. I was in and out of police stations all the time. And there were entire walls just dedicated to missing people, posters everywhere. Something you can get used to seeing. Not used to seeing. How did Bruce and Kelly call you back? Did you, you told them that you were working with private detectives and you were interested in helping? Yeah, that was basically the message to class kids was that I would offer myself to work for them, uh, you know, just for expenses. You know, I always wanted to start a not-for-profit that would do that for families of missing children because if you look at the cost of a private investigator, uh, no average family can afford it. You're, you're talking, some of these guys charge $100, $200 an hour plus expenses. Kelly initially took me up on it. Bruce was really disenchanted with the investigation. Of course, they were both heartbroken. And uh, Kelly and I kind of uh, bonded immediately. But uh, later, it was Bruce and I that became close. And Bruce and I are still friends to this day, very close friends. Were um, Kelly and Bruce together at the time? They were together at the time. They had actually moved out of Vermont. If you look at where Maura Murray went missing and you look at where Brianna went missing, of course, the time frame's relatively close. And it's about 90 miles apart. Um, uh, Brianna went missing in Montgomery, Vermont. Um, but the Maitlands had a hard time living there. If you can imagine every day when you get up and walk out your door, everyone gives you a forlorn look because of what has happened to your child. And, you know, it's not a it's not a uh, densely populated area. Everybody knows everybody. But their house actually had safety measures up. And I asked them about that. Of course, they had some very big dogs, angry dogs, well, at least to me, <laughs> and alarms on their driveways and things like that. People actually were threatening them, which is an odd thing to think that, Misery begets misery, you know. I mean, they're already upset enough as it is, and now people are threatening them. It was threats that came after Brianna's disappearance? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, strange strange little threats would come here and there. And so they, they protected themselves what little they could. And Did the threats continue after they moved? Yeah, to a degree, yep. How did the threats come? You know, I'd have to ask Bruce about that. Um you know, at one point, it was odd after a newspaper article came out, they, they have a son, uh, Waylon, who lived in Vermont. He also received threats. He received letters in his mailbox, things like that. One of them came to Waylon after a, a newspaper article was released, which was threatening towards his uh, companion at the time. Without getting into specifics of uh, the details of the threats, 
was it something or were any of the threats something where you or law enforcement or the family took seriously in a sense of this is a person who might know what happened to Brianna? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, an article was released, uh, written by Hank Alberelli, and he released the most informative articles on Brianna and Mora, as far as I know. And one that he released, named some names, talked about a, talked about a, a, a police affidavit that I found. And we weren't supposed to have the affidavit. So the article was written and then, you know, there were names in it. And uh, then the threats came to, to Whalen. Whalen no longer lives there. He's moved since. I sat down with the Maitlands. They were living in Governor, New York at the time. When I sat down with them and they laid everything out on the table and gave me as much information as they could, it was so overwhelming. There was so much information. It was just mind boggling. And because much like Morris case, there's really not much to go on. You know, everyone is theorizing what happened and that can get very confusing, get overwhelming. But the threats that came were at different intervals it just confused things even more. I mean, it was never anything that could be used to locate anybody or question anybody or anything like that. It just seemed really horrific to me that after the misery that this family, well, during the misery that this family was going through, that on top of it, someone threw salt on the wound, you know, and it happened here and there. That is crazy that people will go out of their way to threaten the family, especially when you said how small the community is. I can remember going up through there the first couple of times. You know, initially I was involved quite a bit. And then as time went on, I was just asked to do specific things, which is beginning again. I, I took some time off from it for a couple of different reasons. But, you know, Bruce and I always stayed in touch. But when I initially went up there, I can remember driving through, and if you're not familiar with that area, they refer to it as the Northern Kingdom, you wonder where everyone works. I remember driving through there and saying, where the hell do all these people work? Well, much like tourist areas here in the Adirondacks, people work for the highway department, they work for the school system, um, they work at the local diners, they work at uh, the ski areas, um, a lot of farmers, things like that. But if you're not used to that kind of environment, it's very odd. You guys have delved so much into Mora's case, you probably got a sense of that with that, too. Because I've been to Mora's crash site, and you can just imagine if you were there in the middle of the night and someone shut your car headlights off, you can't see your hand in front of your face. You know, it's dark. That's interesting that you've been to Mora's uh, accident site. What, uh, what brought you by there? Well, when I got involved, of course, certain things had already came to be certain things had already happened and I was getting up to speed and stuff. So Bruce had me sit down with Hank Alberelli, much like he had me sit down with some people that are newly joined into this and get them up to speed. Hank got me up to speed. One of the things was that, uh, that came up was that there was 
and Hank wrote an article about this, was there was a curiosity whether the two were connected. If you look at them superficially, you know, Morris car is found, crashed, abandoned on the side of the road. She's gone, never to be seen again. Brianna's cars found, crashed, abandoned, never to be seen again. Once you delve into things prior to that, they're much different, or they, at least they seem to be. And, you know, I always get upset when you sit down and you talk to people about this. Even people in the know, there's a lot of people who have their, you know, their facts confused or their, their stories come into it or theories and everything. If you look at Mora's situation, you know, Mora was a person who was left at an undesignated time to an undesignated destination that we know of. We don't know what her plans were. It all seemed very sketchy. And we know of no threats to Tamora or anything like that. If you look at Brianna, she was leaving work at 1120 at night, driving to a specific location, and her car is found a mile and a half down the road in an area where people wouldn't normally stop. And if you look at the vehicle it didn't end up that way on its own. She either put it there or someone else did. Um, whereas Mora slid off the road, as far as we can tell. She was, she was in a crash. Um, so there's, there's a lot of differences, but it's just difficult to sit you know, with certain people if they, if they don't know the facts to, to that part of it. It can get confusing. Superficially, it looks related. You look deeper, it really doesn't. And the state police had come out and said, we don't believe that these two things are, are related. That's the other thing that uh, brings the two cases together is the fact that, the, as far as I know, both families are kind of fed up with how law enforcement has treated the respective cases, right? The Vermont State Police will come right out. The people that are handling Brianna's case now will, uh, will come right out and say that, look, initially this, this was screwed up. It was, it was done very poorly. Those people are since gone, um, and the family is very confident with the, the investigators that are in there now and have been for a long time. So that's kind of that attitude has changed. There's a lot of horrible mistakes made in Brianna's case. I mean, it was, it was bad, but some very confident people took over. Their hearts are in it. So that's a good thing. You know, Bruce and Kelly met with Fred at one point when this was going on, and this was a big discussion and their hearts go out to him. Um, you know, I, going back to the whole threat thing, I hate to see when people bash Fred, really do. I just think it's ridiculous on its face to think that Fred had anything to do with this. I think where the problem comes in is with like Morris' case and Fred is where there may be a certain situation, I can't think of one off the top of my head. Well, let's use the rag and the tailpipe. Actually, when I first heard that, I asked my mechanic, I said, what would happen if you stuck a rag in my tailpipe he said well your car wouldn't run for real long he said eventually your car would quit you know that exhaust is going to go somewhere well when you're driving up through where mora was traveling if you're if you she pulls into a, a rest stop or something along the side of the road and somebody sees her and stuff set into her tailpipe he knows whichever way he follows her she's going to go to a probably semi-remote area and then she's going to conk out and he's going to be right there so that, that theory is something that is, is pretty reasonable. But then the whole talk of, well, Fred told her to put it into her tailpipe so that, you know, so that uh, the car didn't smoke, so she didn't get pulled over and things like that, which 
I don't know if that's true or not true. I don't know. I, I'm not really, not really, really up on Maura's case other than what I've heard on your show and things that Bruce has told me and things like that. But um, I think that's nuts. I would never tell my child to, to stick something like that in their tailpipe. But if that's what he did, that's what he did. I don't know if that's what he did. But that's just an example of how people that don't have facts, I mean, I'm sure he's explained that to the police or, or if that's a fact. You know, it's just something that we don't know. So we can all sit and talk about that for hours and come up with what we can come up with, you know. I've talked about it in the past. I've talked about it for literally months trying to figure out what, what that was all about. And I think it's tough to uh, to do that and then come to the realization that, yeah, Fred probably already explained it and it's not a big deal. In Brianna's case, you know, she's driving a, an old 88 that her grandfather gave her, this big old boat of a car that you drive until – it's expired and then you move on, but it's your first car that your grandfather gave you. And it is what it is. I mean, you could practically live in the thing. It's so big. It's like driving two couches around. Talk to us a little bit about how the car was found. Brianna's car, when, when you leave the Black Lantern Inn, which no longer exists, um, I'm not sure what it is now, if it's even a functioning business, but it was an inn and she was washing dishes there. Uh, she punched out 1120 at night and normally she would stay and, you know, have a little something to eat and, and talk with her co-workers and things like that. But she had to be to uh, work the next morning. So she got in her car and she drove away about a mile, mile and a half down the road on the left side of the road, which had been on the uh, uh, other side of the oncoming traffic, was a building called the Dutchburn Home. It was what it was referred to locally. It was an, an old farmhouse that just sat all by itself. The reason they called it the Dutchburn Home was because two elderly men had lived there all their lives, uh, they were, someone broke into their home, robbed them, assaulted them. Uh, they were, you know, taken away to be, to a hospital uh, and never returned home. They both went into nursing homes after that. It was a very sad situation. I think the whole home, home became kind of known for that. But if you were driving past this house, this farmhouse, you could pull off at a gradual grade across the oncoming traffic or if you're coming the other way, just pull off the road and pull up in front of the house. Kind of, it was, it's almost looked like that's the way the people that live there always parked. Um, it was alongside the road and it sat back a little ways, not too far. Her car was found as though she had pulled across oncoming traffic. Of course there at the, you know, almost midnight, there is no traffic. Um, and then backed up pretty at a pretty good clip, backed into the house hard enough to where uh, a piece of plywood that was boarded up over one of the windows fell down on the back of the house. The odd things about it were, you know, the police have some photographs. An officer came by the next day and he saw the car and he took some photographs of it. Supposedly, and this is something that we're not quite clear on, picked up a broken necklace and some things off the ground and threw him into the car and left. He got another call and he left. He just figured it was a drunk driver. But if you looked at the car, it was in such a bizarre way that I, I don't see how he could come up with a, a drunk driver backing, you know, 30, 40 feet, 45 feet into this house. But that was the story. There was a, a very credible witness, an older man who came by around 1230 and saw the car there with its lights on 1230 in the afternoon no actually it was 1230 at night so there's that time frame where she leaves at 1120 
and at 12.30, the car spotted there. So in your opinion, the car went from the road directly to where it was found. And not what I'm getting at is, is there any indication that the car had been parked and then put into reverse at a later time and backed into the building? Well, we don't know. I mean, there was always the theory that she met someone there, that someone had contacted her. We heard that a lot, that somebody contacted her and said, hey, meet me there for whatever reason. And, you know, you talk to the locals and they're like, that's, you know, they used to call it the crack shack and things like that. This is out in the country. The kids will all tell you that nobody stopped it. Nobody went there, you know, for that kind of activities. So it was a really bizarre place. But it, it would have been a place where someone would say, hey, uh, meet me after work. I got to give you something or meet me after work and we'll have a quick beer and you go on your way or whatever. So we don't really know. But if you look at the time frame, because we, we always heard these theories that she was while well, we heard stories that she had gone to a party and she'd overdosed. And then they planted her car there. The time frame just doesn't fit. I mean, it's got to be a round trip. If you, you, you can figure just by the time frame how far she could travel and then come back, she would literally have to go to a party, ingest something, die, and then everybody panics and goes into action and gets her car back there and does whatever they do with her. It would just have to be such a quick series of events. It, it doesn't seem... I'm not saying it's impossible. It seems incredibly unlikely, though. Right, because what you're saying is she left work at, what, 11.30, and then this credible witness saw the car with the lights on at 12.30. So, yeah, 11.20, 12.30, yeah. What time did the boyfriend see? Was it her boyfriend that drove by and saw the car? Or ex-boyfriend that drove by that night and saw the car? Because of the fact that they lived in an area that, well, I don't know about you, but my high school was small, so you kind of dated through the, the class, you know? <laughs> like, everybody yeah. did that, but... You know, he was a local kid that she had dated on and off. Um, he was actually coming home and saw the car there at 4.30 in the morning. And he put his lights on it and he said he thought it was her car. But, you know, in question, I think he was questioned pretty uh, pretty tough. They said, well, why didn't you stop? He said, well, I could tell she wasn't there. And he also said, well, I'd been drinking. He was coming back from Canada. He had been at a bar up there. So he said, you know, I just there was no need for me to really stop. That's that's pretty odd to me. That, that's pretty odd to me. But he did he did get questioned by the police and was determined that uh, that he had nothing to do with any foul play involved. It just seems odd to me. Usually when I when I'm drinking, like I I feel like I would have I'd be more inclined, and maybe it's just me, but I feel like I would be more inclined to stop at something like that. He was he was questioned pretty pretty well, and uh, he's still up there. He's a, he's a local guy, um, but. You know, I, like I said earlier, you know, I don't know what the police know. I know that they questioned him really hard. I know that they, you know, he had a reasonable explanation. And, you know, that goes back into a lot of different things. Like with Morris' case, too, you, you start looking at every little thing. And then sometimes there's just a reasonable explanation. And, you know, he said he knew she wasn't there. He could see, he could see that she wasn't there. And Maybe he thought that by driving away, there's only two directions to drive. Maybe he figured he would see her walking down the road or something like that. But he said he said he was drunk. He admitted he had been drinking and didn't want to get caught. And again, these are young kids. In the Disappeared episode, it brings up this moment when Brianna and her mom, Kelly, were shopping the day of her disappearance. And Brianna went out into the parking lot and came back a few minutes later when Kelly met her in the parking lot and Brianna seemed to be acting differently. 
in your conversations with Kelly and Bruce, have you heard what what they believe that was, or is there any insight on what they believe that interaction was? They didn't know. Kelly was really upset about that. Um, they didn't know. But uh, I found a witness who told me who it was and what was said. Again, I don't think that that's something I should go into without at least first talking to Bruce about it. But Was it a face-to-face encounter or was it a, um, a phone call? It was face-to-face, and I can tell you that the, 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 what I was told by this witness was that uh, she was told not to go to work that night. That particular witness, uh, the police spoke to him, the other people spoke to him. I, I kind of have some confidence in this guy and... I don't know if the police don't. I don't think that they interviewed him as well as I think they should have. I kind of have a problem with that. But This is a witness to whatever happened outside of the store in the parking lot. Yeah, he actually didn't. He wasn't an eyewitness. He said that the person who spoke to her told him himself, hey, this is what I told her not to go to work that night. So they were friends or just work acquaintances? or They were a little more than acquaintances, yeah. So if we're to assume that Brianna was abducted, which does seem to be the general estimation out there, so you're talking about a group of people now, at least a couple of people, two, three people who know what happened. If you look at where her car was found and the time frame and everything like that, where her car was, you couldn't couldn't park and walk away from there and be happy about it. It's going to be a long, cold walk look at the weather from that night the best i could come up with was was eight degrees was the low and i think 34 was the high for that day if you were going to abduct somebody and you did it alone you know there was all these theories that someone was in her back seat and stuff like that well if someone was going to kidnap her and they were in her back seat what are they going to do once the car's there what are they going to do march her away in the dark i mean it's it's pitch dark unless you're walking by moonlight but um yeah it's always been thought that there was more than one person involved. You know, you know, if you go through the the list of theories of, you know, uh, she ran off on her own, which is the most absurd one I've ever heard. If you believe she ran off on her own, uh, she'd have to have help. She's not just going to ditch her car there and walk away. Someone's going to know. Um, if she did go somewhere and something did happen to her very quickly, someone could could come back and dispose of the car, but they'd have to have someone with them. What are they going to do then? I mean, they, they can't just bring the car back and walk a couple of miles, a few miles up the road. Um, it's all in it, It's kind of like with Morris situation. You know, and there's, that's why there's always been that theory that someone was in tandem with her. Well, the lights on in Brianna's car is uh, kind of sticking in my sticking in my head a little bit. Because the lights on, that suggests, uh, like, departing the area in haste. I always thought that something took place there and that she tried to get out of there. And because she was an inexperienced driver, that she slanted into reverse where someone like myself, I would back out onto the road. But a kid, kid's not going to do that. If you look at the picture of the car, the wheels are turned really hard. That's really interesting. Oh, yeah. It looks to me like something began... While she was either behind the wheel or outside of the car and she got behind the wheel, maybe someone was reaching and throttling her, grabbing her by the hair, grabbing her by the clothing. She guns it in reverse and she hits the house and she's pulled out. 
and that's and that the car sits now because the car was towed and it was never any investigation done there we don't know if the car was in reverse if it was in park if it was in neutral we don't know but the only thing that kind of uh, makes you question that theory is when the car was found the doors were closed and the window was up so and this is a big old car if somebody was reaching and throttling her and she gunned it in reverse they'd run her she would have run them down with the door if she was coming away from the Black Lantern and she pulled up to the Dutchburn home, she would have had to have gone across the oncoming lane and then pulled onto this gentle grade of road. My thinking was if somebody met her there, they came from the other direction, they would now be bumper to bumper front facing each other. So if something happened and she's attacked and somebody's trying to throttle her or do whatever they're trying to do and she gets behind the wheel, which it looks like happened, and she guns it in reverse, like I said, I would, I would back my back into my car up onto the road but a kid's not going to do that an inexperienced driver is going to back and try to do like a three-point turn yeah to get out yeah yeah yep and what she did was run into the home really hard and then she's extracted from the vehicle now i don't know that that's what happened like i said if somebody was reaching in there and she's backing up with that door open she's gonna mow somebody down with that door but the person who told me what was said outside of the store when she was with kelly said that uh, when she was taken at the Dutchburn home, the tall guy got in behind the wheel, and because she had the seat so far up, he couldn't reach the pedals correctly. And he tried to do that three-point turn, and he just hit the house and said, forget it, and got out of the car and left it there, which kind of makes sense, too. The reason I, I kind of bought into what he was telling me was that he had no way of knowing a lot of things about the whole series of events that he told me without hearing it from someone that was there. And that's what he's saying. Do you know if there were any other tire tracks from any other vehicle? There was nothing. There was no footprints. There was no, it was uh, like frost on the ground. There's, if you look at the pictures, you can see debris, which is odd because it doesn't look like debris that's on the side of the road. It looks like debris that came out of a car, that came out of their car. There's water bottles and things like that. In the car was uh, uncashed paychecks, migraine medicine, supposedly the broken necklace, things like that. Funny, when you look at her car, do you remember, I don't know about you guys, I don't know how, how old you guys Mid, thir- mid to late 30s? 27. <laughs> do you remember when you were 17, 18 years old and you'd go out drinking with your buddies up on some country road? I don't know if you guys used to do that. We did all the time. Yeah, absolutely. My, a couple of my buddies drove cars that looked like they came straight out of a junkyard. Well, Brianna's car was the same kind of way. I mean, it was this old beat-up thing. It had dents and nicks. And somebody actually took a picture, and it might have been MJA. Somebody took a picture looking at the back of her car underneath by the where the muffler is and everything. And there's these, like, dings and dents and stuff. But those are natural. I mean, they had been there forever. And you could tell just by looking at them, they'd been there forever. I mean, it wasn't like something fresh. People went and took photographs of the car. And that was another thing, you know, where Bruce got upset with, you know, the cars now become this oddity where people, everybody wants to look at the car and everybody thinks they're going to go, oh, I, I see a dent, so I know exactly what happened. Well, pictures were taken. And when you look at the pictures, it's obvious that this car is just, it's at the end of its life. It's been dinged and bent and, you know, scratched and whatever else. It's just the age of the car. So 
those pictures are pretty useless. I mean, not that you're not going to take the pictures, but it's those things people make things out of them that they just aren't. There are photos of the car. There are there were certain things in the car, but they were all personal belongings. It was takeout food and stuff like that in there. It was uh, clothing and stuff like that. The VSP will tell you that they have physical evidence out of the car, and uh, they do. What time of the day? We know that the uh, car was first reported by hikers or skiers, right? What time of the day was yeah, that? Yeah, there at? were a group of guys. They called themselves the World Travelers, and they were leaving Jay's Peak, which is close. You can actually see Jay's Peak from there, I believe. But they were driving by, and that's that's another thing that really got Bruce and Kelly upset was that police officer stops and looks at it and says, oh, it was a drunk driver or something, and just moves on to the next thing, kind of goes on his long weekend or whatever. And here these got young guys stop and think it's so odd that they stop and take pictures. They just thought it was bizarre. So, And that's the reason that the family and the public really had pictures. I mean, the, the, the police officer did snap some pictures while he was there. Um, and, you know, I never talked to him, and I don't know. Maybe his, his side of the story is a little different than what I'm, what I'm saying. But it seemed bizarre that he would leave and just move on to something else. I. In my mind, I'd be thinking, what happened here? I mean, this wasn't like somebody slid off the road and went in a ditch. It was purposely backed off the road. And the Dutch burn house sat. I don't, they measured it. it was, you're going back to 2006, but I couldn't tell you how many feet. But it's a little ways. I mean, they, she would have had to get that car moving in reverse pretty good and to hit that house. Yeah, it looks so, like 10 or 15 feet from the road. It, it does look odd, and I can understand, I can almost relate to those um, hikers uh, who stopped and took pictures because I, I would think that it looked pretty damn weird too. What, it, oh, yeah. It, 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 it had to have gone across the road to get into that position. Again, I think that she uh, – it, it looks as though she pulled over across the oncoming traffic, pulled over and was stopped there, and that's where she starts to go in reverse – and it would still have been a pretty good little, you know, 30, 40 feet. But, um, yeah, the fact that these guys would stop, it was actually, a, I think they were on a ski trip. Okay. And they stopped yeah. and took photos. And they, they were in contact with the family after that a, a little bit here and there when, they, you know, the family wanted to ask them questions. They were really good about it. I mean, I remember the first time I saw this. It is odd, It's it's but it's more than odd. This is beyond it, – it looks like this weird – and I don't want to – be disrespectful it looks like this weird art installation it looks you know with the house that's boarded up the door of the house the front of the house is almost the same color as the car it looks like this weird art installation or some sort of staged photograph it's like something you'd see in the show hannibal or something something yeah in, in some yeah it looks like a set it looks like a staged it it just looks it looks like somebody wanted to find it and and it's very odd and the fact that people walk, well, they went by it, and it took a group of strangers to be like, "Wow, that's odd." I'm going to take some pictures. A police officer going to this car and not towing it—I mean, not running the plates—is just so bizarre to me. Well, I think I think what he did, he did do um, is to, is he towed it away, but then he just took off and it went to a tow yard. Later, the Maitlands went into the oh. police station when they realized when they realized Brianna was gone. They went to the police station and they. They went in and started asking him some questions, and that officer actually happened to be standing there. And he said, uh, he pulled out a, a photograph, and he said, is this your car? And Kelly's heart just sang. She said, I can't, can't believe it. I, something's obviously wrong. 
but you know, and they rushed over to the tow yard and popped the trunk and stuff like that. And you know, initially when they went in, they asked them, "Do you have the keys?" And they said, "Yes." And then the guy said, "Well, no, I don't. You know, our keys have never been found." There was a guy by the name of Bob Cates who offered his services to come up there with a metal detector. It's kind of a hobby of his, and, and look for the keys, and he did. He didn't find them. But, um, yeah, it was just a bizarre situation to look at. And, um, you know, over the years, I would get these tips. One of them was a, a young girl who said my boyfriend told me that he was involved and that they ditched her car there purposely, but they were so high at the time that they hit the building by mistake and they just left the car. But they were sta- her point was that they were staging it there. And you don't, you don't know what to think. It almost looked as though, as though it's staged. Yeah. You know, with Morris' case, you can you can look at Morris' car in in from the timeline and the witnesses and stuff like that. You know, she was in an accident. You know, this was no accident. I mean, she would have had to skid in the middle of the road, slam it in reverse, and drive quite a distance to hit the building. Right, and we're talking. This is. I'm going to say, what, 11.25, 11.30 at night. I don't think that there are any streetlights here. Right, even as like a, a, a 39-year-old male, I wouldn't park my car there if I'm driving. Like, I have no reason to go there. I have no reason as a 17-year-old female. I have no idea why I would back my car or pull into this creepy-ass house. The only reasonable thing that we heard, and we heard it quite often, and I think I said it on the show was that, you know, we heard that people, someone had called and asked to be met there, which is reasonable, I guess. Yeah. And again, you talk to the local kids and they say, no, that wasn't, that wasn't a meeting spot. She, I mean, she could pull off and meet somebody there, but it's, it wasn't a regular meeting spot. Ramon Ryans and Nathaniel Jackson were two guys that were in Vermont and their sole purpose for being there. They didn't have any relatives there. They didn't have any friends there. The sole purpose for being there was they sold drugs. They sold crack the crack epidemic going on at the time. After Brianna's disappearance, an anonymous call came in and said, Brianna's being held in the root cellar of this home on Reservoir Road. Some fish and game uh, police officers uh, went up there and approached the house. Initially, Bruce called them and said, you know, if you don't go, I'm going. I'll get some friends and we'll go right now. And they said, no, 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 we'll do it. They did. They got everybody out front and center and asked about it. And they said, we don't know what you're talking about. And they said, can we come in and look around? And they said, yes. Uh, So the officers went in and searched the house in plain view, which is probably the only way that they could really have pressed these issues. In plain view, it was a a firearm and some drug paraphernalia and some drugs. So inside the house were four people. Two of them were Nathaniel Jackson and Ramon Ryans. The two other were local people, a guy and a girl. (laughs) This is going to get a little uh, complicated.
Okay, so we're going to stop it there with Greg Overacker. And sorry for the cliffhanger, but uh, it just it gets very complicated, as he said. And we're going to pick it up on our new podcast called Crawl Space. So subscribe to Crawl Space. Follow us on Twitter at Crawl Space Pod. In a way, I'm not so much sorry about the cliffhanger. I think the cliffhanger is appropriate because I think we're approaching this case in a in a much different fashion than we approached Moore Murray's case, where where we we had some theories and we kind of grew with the case and we grew with the uh, with the audience. This is a different case, and this is. I think a cliffhanger is going to entice people to listen more and get more involved and get really focused on the details. So I do apologize for the cliffhanger with you, but at the same time, I'm not sorry for the cliffhanger. And as far as our new podcast goes, we really think you'll enjoy it. We will be covering more than the Brianna Maitland case, but we are going to get deep into that case as well as other cases we are already currently working on behind the scenes. Right. Don't think that we're going to have an episode where we talk about one subject for 45 minutes and then we don't hear about it again. If you hear something that you like, you let us know and we'll dig into it a little bit deeper. We have the ones that are in our heads that we know we're going to start working on. If you have ones, like Tim said, if you have ones that are in your area of the world, send them to us. Let's look into it. And if it's uh, if it's if it's viable, then we will we will dig. We will we will dig into that uh, that proverbial crawl space. So check out the links in the show notes, and we will see you over there. And we will see you next week with another interview on missing Maura Murray. Thank you very much for listening, and go to blueapron.com/missing for your first three meals free with free shipping. And we're excited for all of the listeners to join us as we explore new cases, new mysteries, and new true crime in this new podcast. 